0: week we actually kicked off our new year, uh, the first year in a new decade, in the new millennium, uh, by creating some new resolutions and we decided last week that no matter what we had resolved to do in our lives uh, prior on January 1st and how many of those resolutions we'd actually failed in, that as a people we would actually resolve ourselves as God's people, as this church, to let 2010 be the beginning of our life lived in a less religious way. We said of all the the resolutions that we could make, if we could resolve to to live a particular way this year and from the year forward, we wanted to actually lose our religion and be a people who lived a life that was less religious, that we would live a life that was being cultivated to to reflect the character of Christ, that our lives would reflect his nature, that would reflect his character, that would reflect his reputation, that we would be more like Christ and, and less religious. So that was our resolution. And last week, we began to talk about what that looked like, and and we began to talk about one of the places where that is most keenly uh, clear, where our religiosity, if that's an actual word, where our hypocrisy, Jesus talked about, where our self-centeredness and religious motivation comes out most clearly, we began to talk about what it looked like when we actually pray. We're going to talk about how prayer becomes the litmus test for our authenticity before God, how prayer is the greatest need that we have in our relationship with God, and so we began to look at what Jesus had to say about prayer in his Sermon on the Mount, which is really his greatest teaching about living a life that's not religious. It's really his greatest teaching in the scriptures about what it means to live a life that reflects his character, that reflects his nature, and is not driven by religion driven by self-centered motivations. And so we begin to look at what he had to say about prayer in that Sermon on the Mount, and we begin to see that Jesus immediately, just as he did earlier in the sermon about other things, immediately begins to go underneath the actions of prayer and get after our heart motivations for prayer. Jesus, as we saw last week in, in his teaching on prayer, begins to attack our sense of calling and our sense of motivation for actually coming to God in prayer and he says you know what if you're going to learn to pray and if you want to pray in a way that brings me glory that that honors the father that brings vitality and passion to your life you don't look to the religious people to actually learn how to pray he said the religious people the the pharisees they're the ones who pray so that they get a reputation to for being religious and for doing the right things before other people They're the ones who pray and who read their Bibles and who quote Scripture and and who do all the right things in the places to be seen by all the right people so that everybody gets the right idea of who they are. But when it comes down to it, Jesus said, the real test of the authenticity of their prayer, of their life, of their understanding of who God is and their connection with God is what they're like when nobody else is around. Jesus actually said that, that prayer before people, not that praying here corporately is wrong or praying with your family is wrong. Jesus prayed with people all the time, but the prayer that the Pharisees, the religious people practiced, that they pursued with their life was one that they prayed not to God really, but to themselves. They used their religion, they used their prayer, they used their Bible reading as a way to gain power over other people to be seen a particular way and to to garner a particular reputation so that people would see them in a particular light. And Jesus says that's absolute foolishness and hypocrisy. The real test is what it's like when you're alone. What do you pray about when you don't have to actually think about anything else? What is your prayer life like when you're all by yourself, when no one else is around? When no one else knows that you prayed, when no one else knows that you read your Bible, when no one else knows that you came to church, when no one else knows that you went to a community group like Chris talked about, when no one else can see all the things that you do as good as they are, what's your heart like before God? That's the real test, Jesus said, of the authenticity of our faith, and in particular, our, our prayer. And he says, so don't look at the religious people. That's what we're after this year, to be less religious. Don't look at the religious people. And Jesus said, don't look at the Gentiles. Don't look at the pagans, some of your translations say. He said, don't look at them because not only do they have a wrong motivation for going to God like the Pharisees, they actually have a wrong foundation for understanding why they should actually pray. Jesus began to unpack the motivations for praying, and then he began to unpack the subtleties for the basis, for the foundation, for why we feel like we can pray. And he said, don't pray like the Gentiles because they pray heaping on all kinds of words, babbling on, on and on, feeling like that if they do these things the right way, then God will hear. We talked about what that was like, and how none of us ever wrestle with that. None of us ever wrestle with feeling like if we could just pray the right way. If we just prayed the right words with the right emotion at the right time in the right order in the right way, then God would actually hear because Jesus is unpacking and attacking the underlying motivation and, and struggle that underneath that sense, underneath that feeling, is this belief that God really doesn't care. He really isn't predisposed to listening to you. And so you've got to conjure up a particular method of praying, a particular fervency in praying, a particular emotion in praying before God would actually listen to you. And he said, don't look at them who pray that way because it's not true. And he began to unpack the wrong motivations we have for praying. He began to unpack the wrong foundations that we have for feeling like we can come to pray and be heard by God. And he began to shape it our understanding of our, our faith, begin to shape our understanding of our life and to begin to understand shape the understanding of our, our prayer and why we talk to God in an absolutely new and unbelievable way. And we looked at it last week. He said we actually can come to God with the motivation and the foundational understanding that he's our father, that he's our dad, We come to God in prayer because he's our dad. And that relationship shapes the way we understand our faith. It shapes the way we understand our relationship with God. And it shapes the way we understand our prayer or our communication or our relationship with him. He's our father. He's our father in heaven. And we looked at that last week and began to talk about how that shapes everything about our life. It begins to shape everything about our faith and to understand what it really means to be a Christian. To understand what it really means to have a vital passionate, intimate, transformational relationship with God, we have to understand what it means to be his children. And so we talked about that last week. And, and this week, we're going to begin to move into the prayer more particularly, into the prayer, into the petitions, into the pieces of what Jesus is teaching them about prayer. We're going to take the next few weeks to do that. And in just a second, we're going to read it. But what I want you to see as we read this prayer is I want you to notice a couple of things before we begin to unpack it. I want you to notice who the central primary person, who the central primary actor, who the central primary focus of this prayer really is. You know, I've learned of the Lord's Prayer for, gosh, 20 plus years. I've prayed this prayer i learned it as a kid i've heard more sermons about the lord's prayer i've read more books about the lord's prayer and i've always understood and there's a million ways that we can teach this and break this up and you can always i've always understood that the first half is about god and then the second half is about me so if i always pray to god first and then come about me then my prayers will be right and i began to build my my relationship with god and my prayer to god and my talking and, and, and interaction with god around this idea that if i just spend enough time making much of him first then i could pray about myself and then he would hear and i was just like one of those gentiles Something like if I just got it right, if I just followed this order, then my prayer would actually be heard because he really wasn't predisposed to actually listen. What I want you to actually see as we begin to read this is, though it is to some degree broken up that way, and though the priorities as we talk about it are more central in the beginning of the prayer about who God is and what he has done, in reality, the entire prayer is about God. The entire prayer is about God. As we read it in just a second, I want you to see that not only will we start off the prayer, will Jesus start off teaching us how to pray by talking about the central reality of God's honor and then move into the central reality of God's will and God's kingdom. He'll then move into the things that sound like our petitions and the things that we need, but in reality, what we're asking is for God to provide. We're asking for God to direct. We're asking God to forgive. We're asking God to deliver. The central reality is we read this Lord's Prayer and begin to unpack it over the next few weeks that I want you to grab and I want you to hold on to. And by God's grace, I pray, because I won't be able to do it, but I pray that he does it in you is that he begins to shape your understanding of your life with him, that it is truly, holy, and totally centered around who he is. It is not about you. It's about him. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Matthew 6. We'll read this prayer. And then we're going to start with the first of six or seven petitions, depends on what scholars you read, how you do the grammar and how you break up the commas. But Matthew chapter 6, we'll start in verse 9. Jesus said, don't pray like the religious people, don't pray like the pagans. They don't understand who God is. But when you pray, pray this way. Matthew 6, 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he's praying for God's name, God's honor, God's will. Now give us this day our daily bread, God's provision. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, God's forgiveness. And lead us not into temptation God's direction, but deliver us from evil, God's protection, God's deliverance. For if you forgive others their trespasses, Jesus said, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer not to be prayed in a formulaic way, though it is a prayer to be prayed in order sometimes. You can pray this and let it shape you. It is a prayer that Jesus has given us that really serves as chapter headings, for lack of a better description principles or targets by which our prayers are aimed at. It is really a prayer that as we pray it, as we meditate upon it, as we deal with what Jesus is saying in these petitions, begins to shape us. It's a prayer that begins to change us. So for a lot of you, you've prayed this prayer for years. you prayed it at sports, you prayed it in church, you prayed it in your house, you prayed it before dinner. Nobody in here is totally unfamiliar with this prayer. You've prayed it for years. What I want you to do over the next few weeks is to slow down. I want you to slow down, and I want you to listen to what he's saying. I want you to listen to what Jesus is teaching us, so that maybe the next time we pray this prayer, as we close our eyes and we try to shut the world out, and we try to focus our attention, and we pray this prayer, that it's not just the words that come out of our mouth, but what is behind them, what Jesus is getting at, will begin to shape our hearts and begin to shape our souls, begin to shape our understanding of who we are, and that will begin to shape how we come to God, how we interact with him. And how we talk with him. So we'll start with the first petition. Chapter 6, verse 9. The first thing that Jesus says after we go to God as our Father. After we understand who he is as our Father in heaven. He says, pray this. Hallowed be thy name. Now there are a couple of things in understanding what Jesus is praying here. And what we're actually be praying for that get lost in translation. There are two things, two principal pillars in this petition, Hallowed Be Thy Name, that we're going to have to understand if we're going to understand what Jesus is getting at in this petition and how it begins to shape us and change who we are and how we relate to God. One of them has to do with names, and the other one has to do with this word, Hallowed. So we're going to start with names and understand what we, what we miss in translation here, what we miss in reading this, what culturally and in our current time causes us to read this and, and miss what God is saying, and then we're going to try to unpack this word hallowed. But the first thing we've got to understand is what the Bible talks about when it talks about someone's name. You know, when we talk about names, when we talk about naming our kids or, or, or the names of our friends, we don't really give much reference anymore to what the name actually means, I mean, if you're honest, in this generation, maybe more so than other generations, but I don't think they were totally immune from the desire, we tend to name our kids based on what we as parents think will sound good. I mean, we we tend to name our kids based on what we want other people to think about us because of the name that we've given our child. I mean, very rarely do we even take into consideration what it's going to be like for that child five, 10, 15 years down the road when whatever was culturally relevant to us when we named them has changed. And that name is no longer cool. That name is no longer different. That name is no longer trendy. Everyone else has chosen to name their child that name too, and they're no longer unique and no longer stand out in the crowd. You see, in the Bible, when people were given names, when parents named their children, names connotated something about the person's character. Parents would name their child a particular name in hopes that they would grow into what that name meant. And oftentimes in the Bible, people's names were actually changed at some point in their life. Even in adulthood, you'll find in the Old Testament, people's names were changed based on something God had done in their life and how God had intervened and changed them and shaped them. And he gave them a new name because that name represented who they were. That name shaped something about that person. When you heard that name, you understood something about that Names are personal. Numbers, social security numbers, impersonal. Names, personal. And it's no less important when it comes to God. God revealed himself throughout the entire Old Testament, throughout all the scriptures, by particular names. And when God revealed himself in the scriptures by particular names, it connotated something about his character. So if we're going to understand what it means to pray that his name be hallowed, we're going to have to understand what this name means actually is, because we use God's name, the word God, in all kinds of flippant ways. We use it in ways that do not honor him. We use it in ways that are absolutely meaningless in our language. So we're going to have to understand what is meant by the name if we're going to understand how to pray that it be hallowed. So I've given you, I don't know if I have made it on the slides, I've given you some of the more common names of God, here we go, in the Old Testament so that you can get an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about this name. Um, Herman Bovnik, one of the great scholars, Reformed scholars, he said, all that can be known of God by virtue of his revelation is called in Scripture God's name. God's name means everything that is true about God. It means everything that has been revealed by God, about God. It means all of his attributes and all of his actions, all that he is and all that he's done and all that he will do. Everything that can be known about God is summed up in this idea of his name. Now here's some of the most common. The first one is the the name El, just the simple name El. It's used 217 times in the Old Testament in reference to the God of the Scriptures, but as many times, if not more times, to represent false gods of the other nations. El is a common generic name for God, and it means mighty one or powerful one. And in the Old Testament, El was most often used in compound ways, and you're probably familiar with some of these names if you grew up in church. There there are names like El Shaddai or the Almighty God. Names like El Elyon, the Most High God, or El Ra, the One Who Sees, or El El olam the Everlasting God, or the Unchanging God. But El, E-L, El, is the most common, generic name for God. It speaks of power and might. The next most common name for God in that scripture, especially in the Old Testament, was the name Elohim. Now Elohim, simply, if you look at it, is another way of working with El. It's actually the plural form of El. And so when the Bible and the Old Testament speaks of Elohim, it's actually, depending on whether you believe it or not, in reference to some aspect of God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the plural nature of God. Elohim is another common name for God throughout the Old Testament, but it's used over 2,500 times in the scriptures. Sometimes it was used of the God of the Bible. Sometimes it was used of false gods. Sometimes in the scriptures it was used of kings as nations began to believe that their their kings were like God. Elohim has a translation that that roughly means something like mighty or majestic, one true God. Whenever you see Elohim in reference to God, it's talking about his might or, or his power or his majesty. And You see that in places like Genesis 1, where it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth, or when the psalmist in Psalm 33 talks about God who created all things by the word of his mouth, by speaking all things into existence. That word is Elohim. He is the creator God. He is the powerful God. He is the majestic God. He is the all-powerful creator. That's what this name Elohim is, is talking about. That's what people understood when they heard this name Elohim. But the issue is, if you, if you stop there and You only understand God by his names of El or or Elohim. What you get is a picture of God's majesty and his might and his transcendence and and his role as creator and ruler and sovereign. You get this picture of power, but what you don't get is this picture of presence. You don't get this picture of imminence. You get a picture of might and glory and grandeur, something totally separated, and if you stay there, you could understand how you and others see God as this Unmoved mover, people will say, this powerful, majestic being that has no desire to interact with creation, who is apart from creation, who set creation in order and let it go and stands back to watch what happens. But that's not where God ended in revealing himself to his people. That's not where he stopped as he began to tell his people and show his people who he was. The next name that you'll see in the Old Testament the next name that God revealed himself by was the name Yahweh. Some of your translations will, will say Jehovah. That's the name that God gives himself. That's the name that he wants to be remembered by. When Moses sees God at the burning bush and God tells him to go back to Egypt to be God's representative, to be his man in his place, to deliver his people from slavery, and Moses says, well, who should I say has sent me? This is the name that God says to tell the people has sent him. Not the almighty God separate over here. Not the all-powerful Elohim who resides in the heavens, who does what he pleases. Yahweh, or Jehovah, is a personal name. It's not a title. There's a difference between a title and a name. El, Elohim, those are titles of majesty and power and grandeur and greatness, Yahweh, is a personal name like Robert or David or Raymond or Chris. It's a name that connotates intimacy. It's a name that connotates relationship. It's a personal name about who he is. It means I am that I am. And God reveals this name to Moses as the redeemer. God reveals himself throughout scriptures as the people's God, as their Adonai, scriptures will later say, their Lord. It occurs sometime, some. Almost 6,000, I believe, times in the Bible, God has revealed himself as Yahweh, their God, their Redeemer, their Deliverer. It's a personal name, and it's a name that's used in in other ways throughout Scripture to reveal what kind of relationship and what kind of God he is to his people. There are some other names you're you're used to here. Look at this. Sometimes you'll find in the Scriptures that God will call himself Jehovah-Jireh or Yahweh-Jireh. The Lord will provide Do you remember that story, Genesis 22? Abraham told by God to go and offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on the mountain, and Abraham in obedience to God takes his son Isaac on top of the mountain to do as God has said, and he gets Isaac tied down to the altar. He gets his son strapped down to offer a sacrifice before God in obedience, and he pulls the knife from his belt and begins the process of getting ready to sacrifice his son, and he hears a ram in the thicket that God had sent as a sacrifice, as a substitute for his son. And Abraham calls out, builds an altar in that place and calls out to God, Yahweh, personal God, Yahweh, my God, Yahweh, Jireh, you, the Lord, will provide. Do you know that God? Do you know him that way? Another way he's revealed himself in scripture is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, There was a time when the Israelites were in a battle against against Amalek and and the Amalekites and and Israel was in a battle that they were losing. But as long as Moses would actually raise his hands in praise towards the Lord, as God had told him that he would raise his hands before him, that he would deliver his people in this battle. And as long as Moses' hands were raised, proclaiming that God was their deliverer. That their banner over their armies, their banner of strength and power was not their name. It wasn't Israel. As nations would come into battle, they would raise these banners above their armies that declared their name and declared their strength and declared their might. But God said, as long as you raise your hands up to me, I will deliver you. And God did what he promised as long as Moses' hands were raised. And Moses made an altar right there in the victory of that battle and, and called out to God, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, the Lord is my banner. He's my banner. He's my strength. Other names you may be used to. Jehovah Shalom, one of my favorites. Judges chapter six, one of the books one day we'll actually preach to you. God comes to Gideon. That people of Israel have been in sin and have been in rebellion before God, and the Midianites, another pagan people, are just devouring Israel. The Bible says that actually every time the harvest would come in for Israel, the Midianites would come like locusts and swarm and eat it all. Every time their animals had babies, the Midianites would come, and they would take all their animals, such to the degree that Israel was falling apart and in destitute before God in sin with nothing, And the angel of the Lord came to this man, Gideon, while he was threshing in his barn. He said, Gideon, you, by the strength that I have given you, go and deliver my people. And Gideon, after conversing with the angel of the Lord and realizing whose presence he was in, goes to make a sacrifice, present a gift to this angel. And he builds an altar after realizing that it was the Lord that was there talking to him, that it was the Lord that was there sending him to deliver them, calls out, Jehovah Shalom. You, Lord, are my peace. Ultimately, one day, when you think it through, being fulfilled by Jesus, who becomes the prince of peace, who brings peace between God and sinful man. Gideon was befuddled by the fact that in his sin and in the sin of his people, that God would actually come into his presence, and he wouldn't be destroyed. He said, the Lord, Jehovah, God is my peace. Other names that I can't pronounce. You'll find in there, Jehovah-Ra, jehovah ra You can pronounce the rest of them. You'll see all throughout the Old Testament. But it was God's way of declaring to his people who he was. It was his name. It said something about his character. It said something about his personhood. And when you understand the names of God, when you understand who he was, you understood what kind of God he was. So there, in a way, you could actually say that when we talk about this petition to pray, hallowed be thy name, that phrase, thy name, sums up everything that can be known about who God is. And so when we pray, in just a second we'll talk about what it means to pray, hallowed be thy name. What we're dealing with is everything about God. What we're dealing with is his character. We're dealing with God in himself. All that he is, all that he has done, all that he will do. We're praying about God's reputation. We're praying about his character. We're praying about his name. And what we're going to pray Is that it be hallowed? We're gonna pray that God's reputation be hallowed. And that's the other piece that we've gotta understand if we're gonna understand why we should pray this and what it actually means to pray this. This word hallowed is not a word that most of us use in everyday language anymore, is it? And my guess is, and I could probably bet my mortgage on this one, you probably didn't use this word hallowed this week in conversation unless you were dealing with this prayer. So why, if it's so far out of common usage, does almost every major, moderately literal translation of the Bible keep it in there? And why does every decent translation of the Bible keep this word in there that we don't use in everyday language anymore? It's because it's the only word in English that we have that gets anywhere close to capturing what was being talked about here. To some degree, it's a knock on how poor the English language is now. Uh, and To another degree, it's a little picture of beauty because it's a word that captures the essence of what Jesus is talking about. And to hallow something, for something to be hallowed, means that you make it sacred. You set it apart. You make it sacred. You make it the ultimate thing. To hallow something means that, means that you make it the, the greatest treasure or thing of supreme beauty or, or your ultimate concern. And so when we begin to look at this prayer and begin to look at this first petition and we begin to think about what it means for us to, to pray that God's name be hallowed, to come to God and to pray, to petition him to hallow his name, what we are saying is that we are praying to God that he would make himself We would make everything about him, his reputation, his character, his acts, his nature, his person, that God would make himself the supreme concern, the supreme beauty, the ultimate desire, the most hallowed thing not only in us but in the world. That is what it means to pray, hallowed be thy name. It's the most dangerous thing that we can begin to ask God, and there's a reason why it's the first thing that Jesus comes to because it alone will shape everything else that we're gonna talk about in the weeks to come. We are asking God first and foremost as a state of heart, as an ultimate desire that he would make his name great. That more than anything else, that God would glorify himself in our life and in us and through us to the world. The most important concern to us when we come to God, when we understand what our relationship with God is built upon and what it's to produce, the most important thing to us should be that God make his name great. Should be that God hallow his name. Should be that God do something in us to such a degree that he becomes the treasure of our hearts. He becomes the ultimate concern. That he becomes the supreme beauty. See, the first, most important, and ultimately most pervasive petition in this entire prayer is for God's honor. It's for God's name, it's for his glory. It's the all-controlling petition of this prayer. It's the one that will give shape and direction to everything else. We will not know how to ask for what we need. We will not understand how to understand his will in his kingdom. We will not understand what it means to be led by him and delivered by him if we do not understand what it means to live this life in all of those circumstances for his name, for his glory. This must be what shapes our understanding, not only of something as simple as prayer and as privileged as prayer, but it's something that's supposed to shape our understanding of who we are, the world that we live in, the reason that God has given us breath and given us life. To pray this way is to praise, to petition is to ask that God's reputation, that God's nature, that his character be set apart. That it be set apart in our hearts, It'd be set apart in this world. It'd be set apart in people's lives. And that the infinitely great and beautiful and valuable reality of who God is be made to to be seen for what it is. So that's what it means when we say that we are to pray, hallowed be thy name. But why are we to pray that first? And why are we to pray that at all? We're simply to pray that first. We're simply to pray that at all. Because it's our greatest need. We need to pray that God's name be hallowed in our souls. We need to pray that God's name be hallowed in our hearts and in our lives because it's not natural for God's name to be hallowed in our hearts because of sin. We need to come to God and ask. This is our greatest need, and we need to come to God and petition him for this because it's not natural for us to hallow God's name in our hearts. The glory of God and the reputation of God and the character of God is not central in a sinful heart. That's what Jesus was getting at earlier when he was talking to the, to the Pharisees, those he would call hypocrites, those who would pray to use prayer and to use scripture and to use their, their Christian life as a means of garnering a reputation or of manipulating people or of, or of manipulating their perceptions of, of other people or getting other people's perceptions to be manipulated through what they do. This is what he was talking about. Their, their greatest dire, desire, their central reality, the controlling beauty to them and their souls was not God. They could pray all they wanted. Word after word, formula after formula, time after time, go to temple all they wanted, make the sacrifices all they wanted, keep all the rules they wanted, add rules to the rules and keep all the rules. The central dominant reality in their hearts and in their prayers was not God's name. It was not God's glory. It was not God's reputation. It was their own. This is what he was getting at with them. This is why Jesus has to go there, and this is why this is the greatest need that we have in all of our souls and in all of our lives, and it's why it's the first and chief and most important petition in this prayer. Because in our sinful hearts and in our lives, our desire is not to hallow God's name. Our hearts are wired because of sin to make much of ourselves, to do what we can to make a great name for ourselves. This is why Jesus said you really want to understand what you hallow. You want to understand what that supreme beauty or what that ultimate concern is in your heart? Here's how you find out. Go alone. Get to a place where no one can see you do this. Get to a place where no one can see you like we said earlier. Come to church or go to groups or read your Bible. No one can hear you. Memorize scripture. No one can hear you. Make all of your confessions and petitions and beat your chest and, and cry out before God. No one can hear all the emotion and inflection in your voice. What do you want? What occupies your heart? What occupies your mind? What do you think about when you don't have to think about anything else? What is it that you want? What is it that your mind and heart are drawn to? Is it your job, family, success, relationship, hobby, Uh, whatever it may be? I I don't know what it is for you what your heart goes to when no one else is around. No points are scored for what you do. Reputation doesn't change at all in anybody else's eyes. You can't earn anything before other people. What your heart goes to, what your mind goes to, what your desire goes to in those moments, what you are characterized by in those times, that is what you have. That is the thing of supreme beauty, and what happens is we become a people of prayer most often, when whatever that thing is gets challenged. When that job, that family, that relationship gets challenged, then we're driven to God in prayer, and at that point, whenever that resolution comes, our hearts begin to move on to something else. Jesus is saying, look, if we're going to understand this Christian life, if we're going to understand what it is to be transformed by the nature, by the character of God. The first thing that we've got to be most concerned with, the thing that has to be a chief desire in our hearts, the thing that we must pray to God to do on our behalf is to make his name, his character, his glory the central, dominant, and driving reality in our life. See, everybody hallows something. Everybody hallows something. Everybody praises something. Everybody adores something. The trick, Jesus says, to figure out what it is in you is to look at your life in prayer when no one else is around. Do you praise God? Do you pray? Or do you daydream about what's really important to you? And if you do, is it him? If it's not him, what is it? You have to praise something. You have to hallow something. Your heart is designed to do that. The issue is, what is it? This petition, this prayer, that God's name be hallowed is the prayer that encapsulates, that gives word, gives voice to our greatest need. It also is the petition that gives voice and description for the purpose for which we were created. Westminster, Catechism starts off with this great question. What is man's primary purpose? I mean, what is the reason why you are here? That's the question, right? What's the reason that you're here? The answer they give is that man's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the purpose for which we're here. My, my hero in the faith, John Piper, took that question and took that answer began to wrestle with partly this petition of what it means for God and who he is and what he has done to be hallowed in our hearts, to be hallowed in our life. And he took the answer to that question and he changed one little word. He said, the question and the answer isn't wrong, Let's just change it a little bit to make it more understandable and to make it more relatable and to make it more tangible and honestly to make it more true about who we are in our lives and he says our purpose is not just to glorify god and enjoy him forever we glorify god he is hallowed in our lives he is hallowed in our hearts he is hallowed in our souls by enjoying him forever This is the purpose for which we were created. We were created to make much of God, to hallow God in our hearts and in our minds. This is what God created us to experience. This is what he created us for. This is where all the joy and the satisfaction comes. We glorify him. We hallow him. We make much of his reputation and his name in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives by enjoying him for who he is, which is why we said last week that one of the things that makes prayer so difficult is because we fail to understand who God is. We fail to understand who he is and prayer gets muddled because we have wrong ideas about God. And as we begin to understand who he is as our father and who we are as his children, and we begin to understand his name and who he is and all that he has done and how that begins to grab all the pieces of his nature and his character, and we begin to pray, God, make your name the supreme beauty and desire and controlling aspect of my life. Make your name who you are the greatest treasure in my soul. We begin to enjoy God for who he is. And as we begin to enjoy God for who he is, it begins to change the way that we live. And his name is hallowed, not only in our minds and in our prayers and in our words, but in our lives, because it begins to shape and twist and change the reasons that we do the things we do. This is the purpose for which we were created. We were created to hallow the name of God, to set apart the name of God, to glorify the name of God, and we do that by enjoying who he is, by knowing who he is and enjoying him for that. So what we are doing when we are praying, when we are asking God to hallow his name, is that we are asking God to make himself the treasure of our hearts, that we would be people who would be most satisfied in him, and that he would be glorified as we are satisfied. He would be made much of. That's the purpose for which we were created. That is what shapes our understanding of who we are. That's what begins to shape our understanding of what it means to know God. That's what begins to shape our understanding of our purpose for being here. And it's what begins to compel our lives to be lived a particular way. But it's not only a prayer, a petition that deals with our greatest need. It's not only a petition that gives voice and gives word to the purpose for which we were created, but it is a prayer, it is a petition that begins to tie our hearts and our desires to the hearts and desires of our Father because his name being hallowed, his reputation being made known, his glory being made known throughout the earth, that is the purpose for which he's done everything he's ever done. And so as we pray that his name be hallowed, and as that prayer begins to shape and begin to rewire and transform our hearts and our desires, we're actually having our hearts and our desires transformed and changed into his greatest desire. That's the most unbelievable thing about this prayer. It begins to shape our desires to be more like his. It begins to change our wants into the wants of his heart, into the desires of his heart. I mean, just, just listen to this. I'll give you a little run-through from Scripture. Just let Bible prove this. Look at a few things. Why did, why did God create us? Isaiah 43, is that going to come up there? Why did God create us? God said, bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my God created us with the purpose of his glory being made known through us. That was his purpose in creating us. And as we pray that his name be hallowed in us and our lives reflect his glory, our desires and our hearts are being connected to his purpose and his desire. But keep going. Why did God choose Israel? Jeremiah thirteen eleven. I bound the whole house of Israel to me, that they might be for me a people for great renown, for praise, and for glory. Now after they sinned and began to continue to rebel against God and find themselves in horribly sticky situations, why did God actually eventually rescue them from slavery in Egypt? Psalm 106.7, he saved them for his name's sake, his name's sake, that he might make known his power. Isaiah said he divided the waters before them to gain for himself an everlasting name, to make for himself a splendid reputation. Ezekiel 20 says that Israel rebelled against me, God said. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. Well, why did God continue to spare Israel? After they rebelled again and again, after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt and began to take them to the promised land, why did they continue to rebel against him after he had become their deliverer? Ezekiel 20 says that the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness And I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness, to annihilate them, God said. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, before whose sight I had brought them out. So as we pray that his name be hallowed in our lives and in our souls and in our hearts, that his name, all that he is and all that he has done and all that he is for us, be the central dominant reality in our hearts, the treasure of our lives, we're actually praying that our heart's desire be transformed into his heart's desire. That our purpose is being transformed to be seen as his purpose. Why did he ultimately forbid Moses from entering the promised land? You know that story? Moses has led God's people through the wilderness for 40 years in all of their rebellion. Moses has been God's man, leading God's fickle and rebellious people. And, and Moses is, is talking to God, and God tells Moses to, to take his rock and to strike he take his staff and strike the stone, and out of that stone would come water, because his people were complaining that they were thirsty. And in frustration with God and frustration with his people, Moses took his staff, and instead of striking the rock like God said, he actually took his staff and struck the rock twice. And this is what God said: because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy, same word you find in the New Translation New Testament that we translate hallow. Because you didn't believe me. And because you didn't hallow my name in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Why did God preserve Israel, even as they continued to be unfaithful to him after all that he had done? Isaiah 48 says, For my name's sake I deferred my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrained it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Ezekiel 36 says, when they came to the nations where I scattered them and profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of this land, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations. And I will sanctify my great name. Same word in the New Testament, we translate hallow. I will hallow my great name, which you have profaned among the nations. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord when I sanctify myself, when I hallow myself among you in their sight. It's not for your sake that I act, says the Lord. I will bring you out of the nations and I will sanctify myself. I will hallow myself, God says, among you in the sight of nations. God's ultimate purpose, his chief desire, the ultimate concern of his heart is for his name. And this is what we are praying. This is what we are petitioning God, that his desires become our desires, that our hearts become wired to reflect his hearts. The desires of our hearts become, are the same as the desires of his hearts. His heart. But then ultimately, why did Jesus... Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Jesus came because all of us have failed to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. Instead of living our lives that God's name would be hallowed, that God's glory would be made known in us and through us, we have lived for our own glory. We have failed to live for the purpose for which we were created. And instead of being caught up in the great purpose that God created us for, of making his name great, of making his reputation known, we've been caught up in making a name for ourselves. That's the chief reason why Jesus had to come. We've been more concerned with our reputation than God's. Our hearts have been hardwired now because of sin to be more concerned about ourselves, And in more ways than in more ways than I care to actually even admit half the time, I've been far more concerned with my own name. And I've failed to hallow God's name. Not even in what I do, because what I do comes from what I believe and what I want. And what I have wanted is something for myself.
1: I've wanted my
0: name to be great. I've wanted my reputation to be secured. And so for the sake of God's name, for the sake of his reputation, for the sake of his glory, according to his purpose, Jesus came and fulfilled the purpose for which we were created for. Jesus came and in our place fulfilled the purpose that we were created for, and he lived a life here on earth reflecting God's reputation and doing all that he did that brought glory to God the Father the way that we were created to live. And then he died for all of our sin, especially for our sin of failing to hallow God's name in our hearts and in our souls. That is why he came. He came to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. He came to be for us what we failed to be for God. That is why he came. John 12 says that when some Gentiles or or Greeks were coming to Jesus and, and Jesus began to see that the nations were coming to him just as God had said, In John 12, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. And he says, now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus came that God's name would be hallowed. He came to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, the purpose for which we had failed. And then a great promise came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That is why Jesus came. That is why Jesus will come again. Praying that God's name be hallowed is a prayer of commitment to the desire of our Father's heart. Praying, hallowed be thy name, is a prayer that begins to shape our heart and the desires of our heart to reflect the desires of our Father. Praying, hallowed be thy name, is a prayer that begins to cultivate our soul to reflect the character of Christ. Praying hallowed be thy name is a prayer that begins to deal with our greatest need because of sin but begins to connect us to the purpose for which we were created. It's a decision to make the reputation of God, the glory of God, the name of God, the grandeur of God, the driving force in our life and the rationale for all that you do. That's what it means to pray that God's name be hallowed in your life. Let me say this. Lots of us struggle, sometimes more often than others, with the purpose for which we were created. I mean, what's the purpose for why I'm here? I mean, when it gets quiet at night and all the lights go out and you're left with yourself and your struggles and your thoughts and your heart and your soul, you wrestle. I mean, what's it all for? And why am I doing this? I mean, what am I actually here for? And We've fallen for this deception that we're the center of it all. That we're the center of the universe. That it's all supposed to revolve around us and when things don't go the way that we think they should, we struggle with what the point of it all is because it's not going according to our plan. And we've fallen under this deception that we're the center of it all and And what that does is it begins to shape our view of God. And it begins to shape our understanding of who he is. And he's no longer our father in heaven whose purpose for all of eternity was to make a name for himself and to transform us to reflect his character and his greatness and that through us, his name and his glory would be made known and that we would receive a joy and a satisfaction that comes from being satisfied in who he is. But he's now become something that is a tool to be used to achieve the ends for which I think I was created and the things that I think will bring me what I want and we've stuck ourselves square in the middle of a universe that isn't really real. And God's become a means to an end and as a result we're gripped and twisted and gnawed at with discontent frustration and angst and disappointment and and ultimately, a really unhealthy inwardness, but that's not the way that it, we were created to live. That's not what we were created for. When we pray, when we pray, "Hallowed be thy name," just you stop and you sit back and you think, "God, ha- hallowed be thy name," when the diagnosis is bad. when the marriage is struggling when the kids have run away, when the job is on the rocks, when the promotion actually comes and the decision comes to move or stay, when the windfall comes, and the way that you live is challenged to sit back and to pray, hallowed be thy name. May your glory be the driving reality the driving motivation the greatest treasure in this situation in my life in my heart in the midst of this when that when that becomes a reality for us we begin to see that god has called us into the greatest and biggest and largest and most glorious purpose for being and for living in the entire universe we're a part of his purpose We're a part of his story. We're a part of his plan for him to be glorified. When that begins to shape us, when that begins to drive us, when that begins to control us, we begin to become the salt and light people that he talked about earlier in the sermon. We actually become a part of his great story and his great purpose for all of the universe. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, Our desires, they're coming in line with his. Our purpose is being shaped. Our greatest need is being met. As we become more satisfied in God, in who he is, and we understand what he has done for us and will continue to do for us, and that begins to meet the desire of our heart. It changes us. It transforms us. That's what we're doing when we pray, hallowed be thy name. Let me pray for us. Father, teach us to pray, hallowed be thy name. Teach us to pray. Shape our hearts. But I know this isn't my controlling desire 24-7. I know that unfortunately I am a professional hypocrite and religious person. Tempted beyond measure to do what I do for the sake of a reputation, for the sake of a name that sometimes isn't yours. Teach us, God, to pray. Hallowed be your name. In all the circumstances in our life, let it Be the controlling, dominant desire of our hearts. Let your name and your reputation and your glory shape our prayers for need. Shape our prayers ultimately for provision. Shape our prayers for protection. Shape our prayers for your will. Help us to see who you are and be satisfied by you. Cultivate that in our souls. Cultivate our souls to reflect you, to reflect your character, to reflect your desires. Teach us teach us to pray. Hallowed be thy name. Amen.